Well, good morning to all of you. Uh, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, verse 9? Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. We're continuing our winter seminar series on the topic of prayer, uh, entitled Praying as We Should. And I just appreciate how Milton started us off last week, um, just making the reminder and the point that none of us know how to pray as we should fully. Um, And I confess to you this morning that I do not know how to pray as I ought to, uh, which means we're in big trouble. Were it not for the fact that Jesus uh, is committed to teaching us how to pray, and it's his word that we'll look at this morning, um, and he will teach us, I'm confident of that. Let's go to him um, in a word of prayer as we begin. Father in heaven, we come before you and we acknowledge that you are our Father, that you are in love with us, and you are mighty to save us, mighty to, to bless us and to hear our prayers and to answer them according to your perfect will. And Lord, we thank you that we are your children, bought through the precious blood of Jesus. We thank you that you are committed to teaching us how to pray. And as we come to you, Lord, we confess we do not know how to pray as we ought to. And we're asking you, like the disciple that we heard about last week, Lord, teach us to pray. That's our prayer this morning, Father, and we just pray that you would answer that, that through this passage, through what Jesus will speak to us this morning from your word, we pray that you would teach us to pray in a way that would glorify and honor you in the way that you would have us to. I pray that you would guide me, Lord. I'm ever mindful of my weakness, not only in prayer, but in preaching, and I pray that it would just be your word and your heart that we receive this morning. Be with us as we engage in your word, as we study it and meditate upon it and seek to live it out in our own lives. We pray and we even thank you in advance for answering our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you want to give a title to the message, it's Praying for the Glory of God. Praying for the Glory of God. That's our goal, to pray in such a way that God would be glorified. And Jesus, I really believe he's going to teach us more about how to pray in this passage. We're looking at the Lord's Prayer, or what some call the Disciples' Prayer. And Jesus is, is committed to teaching us how to pray in, in this passage. In fact, in verse 9, where it starts, where the prayer starts, he says, pray then in this way. Pray like this. And before Jesus goes on to teach us how to do that, he, he has begun in verses 5 to 8 to teach us how not to pray. And he highlights the reality that there are two ways to pray. There are two ways to come to God. There's one way where we come to God and we come praying, seeking our own glory and coming in our own self-righteousness. And Jesus says, do not pray in that way. And he gives us two examples. And you can see the first one in verse 5 where it says, don't pray like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. These are men who have or who engage in prayer for the only reason, the sole reason to see their, themselves glorified, for their own glorification. Jesus says, if you're like this, this is what he would counsel you to do. He says, go find a quiet place, a secret place, and re-understand, relearn what it means, what prayer means, that it is communion, first and foremost, communion with God, your Father. It's coming into His presence and communing with Him and laying your heart out before Him and talking with Him and making requests of Him. 
And there's another example of how not to pray in verse 7. He says, when you pray, don't be like the Gentiles who heap up empty phrases thinking that they'll be heard for their many words. These are those who pray and come in their self-righteousness. They come with lips whose heart is far away from God. So they're praying meaningless words, heartless words. And they're doing so thinking that they'll somehow appease their gods, in the case of the Gentiles, or God, or somehow impress him so as to gain favor with him. And God says, don't come that way to me. Don't come in any kind of self-righteousness where in the way that you pray or how long you pray or the words you use, that you think your prayers will mean anything or merit you anything. He says, you already have a father who knows exactly what you need. He knows your heart. He knows every part of you. Just come without your righteousness. Come in humility and brokenness before this father. You see, when Jesus then begins to teach us how to pray, and when he says, pray then in this manner, he, he, it's amazing what he does. He, he, he spends no time teaching on a specific location to pray. Yes, he just mentioned praying in private, but he also prayed in public and endorsed that. In fact, Jesus prayed in public so often that, as Milton mentioned last week, people were in awe of his prayer life. And they looked at it and said, wow, we don't know how to pray. Lord, teach us how to pray. So he doesn't spend time teaching us in the Lord's Prayer about how, where to pray or even the time to pray or the posture to assume when we pray or even what to wear when we pray. You see, what Jesus is giving us is, is something big. It's more than just a list of words to recite. There's nothing wrong with reciting the Lord's Prayer, word for word, or even repeating it. There's nothing wrong with praying in repetition. Jesus repeated the same words to his Heavenly Father in the Garden of Gethsemane three times. Repetition is not the problem. What Jesus said earlier about the Gentiles was that they pray with, with no heart engaged. They pray with a heart that's far away from God. So Jesus is, in, is giving us more than a list to recite. The Lord's Prayer is in, inspired words, and it's wonderful, and we ought to pray it word for word often. But it's more than a list. It's more than a recitation. And it's more than a method or a formula. It, to be sure, it is a model. It is a model that we can use. But models in themselves can also be dangerous, just like mindless repetition. In fact, I love what Paul Miller says in his book, A Praying Life, and many of us are familiar with the model acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. But Paul Miller warns about the dangers of just looking at the Lord's Prayer or using a system or a model. He says systems can become rote and desensitize us to God as a person. We can become wooden or mindless as we pray. When I come home, I don't first adore Jill for a couple of minutes, confess my failure to take out the trash, thank her for making dinner, and then give her my list. Jill is a Philadelphian. Philadelphians boo their own sports teams. I could probably have an axe conversation entrance once, and then Jill would roll her eyes and ask me if I had a touch of autism. And rightly so. When you're autistic, you have trouble picking up social clues from the other person. You're so lost in your own world that you miss people. None of us wants to be treated like robots, including God. He is, after all, a person. And so what we have here, what Jesus begins to give us, is more than a list. It's more than a model or a method or a formula. What Jesus is giving us when he tells us, pray then in this way, is he is giving us a way to pray with a right heart. And he is teaching us to pray in a way that will ultimately bring glory to God. I love what Piper says. He says, what does it mean to glorify God? 
It does not mean that to make him more glorious as if we could add to his glory. It means to acknowledge his glory and to value it above all things and to make it known. And the scriptures teach us that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do it to the glory of God. And so when we come to learn how to pray, and I believe what Jesus is doing here, is he's going to teach us how to pray in a way that glorifies him. And the only way to glorify God is to come and pray with a right heart. And so when we look at the Lord's Prayer, when we look at the disciples' prayer, what we're going to see is six attitudes of the heart that will enable us to pray in a way that glorifies God. Jesus longs to teach us to come to him in the right way, with a right heart, so that we can glorify him. And so he's going to give us these six attitudes, and they're found in the prayer itself. The first attitude that Jesus teaches us to pray with that will glorify him is that we need to pray with a heart of childlike faith. We need to pray with a heart of childlike faith. And we find this in verse 9 when he says, Pray our Father who art in heaven. John MacArthur says, To pray rightly is to pray in faith, believing that God will hear and answer our prayers. I think the greatest hindrance to prayer is not lack of technique or lack of biblical knowledge or even lack of enthusiasm for the Lord's work, but lack of faith. Jesus knows that what hinders us in our faith what can hinder us the most is when we don't see God for who he is, that he is a, an awesome and loving and powerful heavenly father. And when we don't relate to him as his children. Jesus knows the importance of seeing God in this way. And he says this is vital to approaching God in faith. If you want to entrust yourself to God, then see him as your father and come to him as a child. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses one, uh, one uh, phrase or other of this, of, uh, with the word Father in it. Fifteen to seventeen times, somewhere in the Sermon on the Mount, we hear Father. Our Father, our Heavenly Father, your Heavenly Father. And this is striking because the Jews, by this time in history, had, because of sin, had grown so distant from God that they no longer related to him as a father. Even though he had revealed himself in that way in the Old Testament. And often we're like that. We've, we've come to a place where we don't see God as a father who loves us. Jesus is all about wanting us to come with a heart that understands and embraces and relishes and enjoys our sonship in God. We see this, especially on this side of the cross, in passages like Ephesians 1, where it says that because he's our father, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we've been chosen to be in a relationship with him. And we've been known and longed for and adopted in love. And we've been redeemed and forgiven of our sins and fully accepted and embraced. And we've been lavished with his grace. And we've been given an inheritance. And we've been sealed with his spirit. No wonder John the Apostle said, I'm sorry, John the Apostle says in 1 John 3, 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. That's one thing to have a father who loves us this way like our Heavenly Father does, but has no power to help us. That would be defeating and despairing because he wouldn't be able to answer our prayers 
But Jesus is teaching us to pray our Father who art in heaven. And every time we see that in the scriptures, describing God as the one who is in the heavens, it is exalting his power and his sovereignty. It is describing him as the king of kings, the sovereign one, the one who has all power. Psalm 115.3 says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And this is, the, this is the father that we have, a father that not only loves us, but who's king of the universe, who longs to be in a relationship with us and longs to unleash all of his good power in our lives. To have us come into his presence through prayer and, and talk with him and lay our requests at his feet. And this should encourage us, this picture of God as our father. And we see this beautifully um, illustrated by Jesus in Mark chapter 10. It's a familiar verse. Um, I love, we, I really believe that Jesus here is depicting the Father. In fact, Jesus told Philip, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And so we see Jesus here and there's parents who are coming, bringing their children to him that he might touch them, it says. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and he said to them, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And this is the picture of our father. He's a father who longs for his children to come to him and who gets angry at anyone who would hinder them from doing that. And then when they've come, he, he receives them and he brings them into his arms and he blesses them and he lays his hands on us. This is a picture of our Father. And when Jesus says he wants us to be praying, our Father who art in heaven, he wants us declaring this reality and believing it with all of our heart. You see, we came to God in faith as children, but we must continue to relate to God in faith as children. And for most of us, that means that we need to stop relating to God in this father-adult relationship. Because that's how we come to him, as an adult. Those of us who are parents know what it means to be childlike because we see it every day. To be childlike, among other things, is to be without pretense. To come in sincerity and honesty. When my kids come to me, they come messy. They come as they are. They don't get all spiritual when they need to talk to me and get all weird. They they just come. They tell me, Dad, I don't want to do my homework. Or I'm having a bad day. They come the way that they are, in honesty, without pretense. To be childlike is also to be excited about our parent, our parents, and to be in awe of them. My kids have a sixth sense when, they, when I'm coming up into the driveway, they know that I'm, that I'm approaching somehow. And I can hear, as I'm turning the key to the door, I can hear little feet running to tackle me and embrace me and give me hugs. Uh, They're excited about me. They're excited to see me when they haven't seen me in a while. And they stand in awe of me. And since I've been working out, Hannah will tell me things like, Dad, your muscles are so big. (laughs) She really is in awe of me. In fact, she probably wouldn't be able to tell the difference between me and Tim Tebow. Because she's just in awe of her dad. Another Another aspect of childlikeness is to long for intimacy. I can't tell you how many times... Andrew, my oldest, will ask me, Dad, can you just come and cuddle in bed with me before you go to bed? He just wants time with me. Or, or the other kids who are asking me, when are, we going on, when are we going on another date with you? 
They want this exclusive time with their dad. They just want to hang out with me. And they come, especially when I'm working at home, they'll come and they'll just, they'll just come alongside me. They'll just give me a random hug and hang out because they want to be with me. This is what it means to be childlike. It also means to be completely dependent on one's parents and to identify with them. Our youngest, Joshua, he's, he's 16 months and he only knows two words, mom and dad. And he says mom about 10,000 times a day. Mom, 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 mom. And he's just this little shadow following Jennifer all around, clinging to her, going everywhere that she goes. His identity is wrapped all up in her and who she is. He's totally dependent upon her and identifies himself with her. Another aspect of childlikeness, and probably the most important that we're looking at here, is that to be a child and to be childlike is to be full of trust and trusting yourself to your parents. My, My kids don't wake up in the morning wondering where their food's going to come from or if they're going to have clothes or money. And when they're scared, there's only one place they run at night and that's into our bed. That's because they trust us and they're entrusting themselves fully to us. And that's what, what Christ is asking us to be like. You see, this, the sad thing about, the hard thing about being a parent is that one day this all comes to an end. you you come to the door and you open it and there are no little kids running to meet you. Um, And your daughter knows the difference between you and an NFL football player. (laughs) And as they grow up, they long for intimacy with someone else and to go on a date with someone else. And they grow less dependent upon you and find their identity in other things and not in you. And ultimately they... They begin to not need to trust you anymore because they can take care of themselves. But God, he, Jesus is teaching us, don't become like this. It's inevitable for our children in earthly relationships, but God wants us right here. He wants us to relate to him, not as adults, not as those who are all self-sufficient and, and, and self-reliant and can do everything by themselves, but as those who realize that they are children and that they have an awesome Heavenly Father and they come to him as children. That's what glorifies God when we come to him in that way. And so when we're praying, our Father who art in heaven, this is the heart that Jesus wants us to embrace, a heart that sees our Father for who he is and continuously relates to him as a child. Well, there's a second attitude that that Jesus teaches us in this prayer that will glorify him, and that's that we pray with a heart of humble devotion to God, that we pray with a heart of humble devotion to God. And we find this, in verse 9 as well, when, when Jesus says, Pray, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. You see, in, wrapped up in God's name, and his many names are all that God is. His character, his attributes, who he is and what he does. In Exodus 34, 6-7, to 7, the, it says, and he's using the name Yahweh, Jehovah, is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving and steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. See, God longs for his name to be known and he's revealed it in many ways. In fact, we have several names for God that we see throughout the Old Testament in the scriptures. Elohim, the creator God, El Elyon, the God who is the possessor of heaven and earth, 
Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who will provide for us. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord, our banner. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals us. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord who is our peace. Jehovah Ra'ah, the Lord, our shepherd, and so on and so forth. All these names reveal who God is and speak to all that, he's, all that he does, his character. And what Jesus is wanting us to do is he's wanting us to literally, he's to pray, Lord, cause your name, all that you are, all that you do, to be exalted. And that word hallowed means to be, to be reverenced, to be prized, to be valued and honored and adored. You see, what, where God gets glory is that we see him as our father for, for how amazing and awesome he is and that we adore him, that we are devoted to him, that we worship him in love and we treasure him. And what we're praying for is we're saying, Lord, cause this to happen all over the earth. Cause your name, because you're the only one who can ultimately do that, cause your name to be exalted and magnified and lifted up all over the universe. But the spirit of the prayer has to begin with us. We have to pray this. And Jesus is calling us to pray this with a heart who longs for this to be true of us so that we can be uh, like First Peter calls us to be, to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, to set him apart, to exalt him, and to be devoted to him. And see, there's a problem, and that is that we long for our own name to be exalted. All of us long and often we are seeking for our own glory. We're doing things for our own glory, including even praying it was no different in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel. It says of those people who were constructing this tower in Genesis 11, it says, they said, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top into the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. And that was the spirit of man. And it's been that way ever since. We long to be exalted. We long to be glorified. We long to make much of our name through what we do, through who we are. We might be seen. In that way, but to, to pray for God's name to be exalted means that we need to cease and that we must cease to long for our own name to be exalted. That we need to get to a place where we can cry out like the psalmist in Psalm 115.1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Or we can pray like the psalmist in Psalm 34.3, O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. See, to pray in this way is to pray in a way that would glorify God. Where we really pray, Lord, I, I want to humble myself and I want to be totally devoted to you, to your name, to who you are and what you're all about, what you're doing. And I want to exalt that name. I want to lift it up. I want to live in such a way that people will see your name. And I want to sanctify that name in my heart and in my life. And Jesus is teaching us to pray that way because that is how God is glorified. And that's what it means to pray, hallowed be your name, Lord. Not mine. Well, there's a third attitude that Jesus gives us and teaches us to pray with that will glorify him. And that's to pray with a heart of willing submission to God's rule and plan for your life. Pray with a heart of willing submission to God's rule and plan for your life. And we see that in verse 10 where Jesus teaches us to pray your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What Jesus is calling us to is a willing submission to his rule, his sovereignty, his kingdom, and his will for us. 
And what we're praying in this first part of the prayer, your kingdom come, literally, we're praying, Lord, bring your kingdom, bring your messianic, millennial kingdom. Lord, come and reign on this earth and start everything over where, where you are in control and everybody is bending their knee to you. We're praying in the spirit of Second Peter 3.13 where it says, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And to pray your kingdom come is to long for that kingdom, to long for that day where Jesus will reign, where his righteousness will fill the earth. And, and he will be on the throne. But it's not only to pray for his kingdom to come, we're praying for his kingdom to come because we want to be with the king. We want to be with him. The Bible ends in Revelation 22 and Jesus says, Surely I am coming soon. And the Apostle John, in response to those words, says, Amen. Literally, let it be so, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. Because he's longing, not only for God's kingdom, but for the king to come. You see, to pray that God's kingdom come is to have made a choice to live for God's kingdom, to long for his kingdom, and to stop living for our own kingdom. Because really, we're only living for one kingdom or the other. We're either investing on, in, focused on, and serving God in his kingdom, or else we're seeking to build up our own kingdoms. Investing there, focusing there, and serving there. And many of us pray this prayer. We say, yeah, Lord Jesus, uh, yeah, come, come, Lord Jesus, and uh, your kingdom come. But after I finish my college degree or find my future husband and celebrate my 25th wedding anniversary or live long enough to enjoy my grandchildren and my retirement. But to say these things means that we're more interested in our own kingdom than in God's kingdom. You see, we need to pray your kingdom come and we need to pray it with a heart that's, that has ceased to orbit around its own planet and sit on its own throne and has seen how awesome and glorious this coming kingdom is, how amazing the king of this kingdom is and to say, I want to be part of that kingdom. I want to be part of something bigger than me and I want to spend eternity with this one and I can't wait for this kingdom to come. That's what it means to pray your kingdom come. And the next phrase is very close to it. It says, your will be done. Your will be done, Lord. When we're asking for his will to be done, Jesus is wanting us to first and foremost seek to know his will. Many of us are like, Lord, show us your will. But it's amazing. It's surprising how many Christians pray that prayer and yet they're never, they're never digging into where God has already revealed it. They're not students of the word. They're not digging and seeking and clawing at the scriptures what God has already revealed so clearly about his will. So when we pray your will be done, what we're saying is we want to be submitted to what you have revealed already. We want to seek to know that. It, doesn't mean, it means that, but it also means that we seek to believe God's will. Not that we're just pursuing to know it, but that we're embracing it and believing that it's good in Romans 12, 2, it says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you will prove, or you will discern, what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, God's will is perfect. His, his revealed will is perfect, and His sovereign will, His plan for your life and for my life, is the perfect, the best, the very best thing for us. It may be hard, but it is the best. And Jesus says, part of praying your will be done is to not only seek to know that will, but then to embrace it by faith, to believe that it is good and that it is perfect, and then ultimately to seek to obey it. Um, to seek to obey God's will. 
love what Jesus says in John 4:34. He says, my food, what I live on, what sustains me is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. See, Jesus is all about living for God's kingdom and for God's will and doing whatever God had ordained for him. <clears throat> I love Mary's example, especially as we come into Christmas time. Imagine being a young girl with your whole life ahead of you, engaged and about to be married, and then you're being told you will become pregnant and not by the man you're about to marry, and you will give birth to a boy, and you won't even get to pick his name. Imagine the implications and all that would come with that, being, being told this. Mary, you're going to become pregnant without your choice. You're going to have to deal with the possibility of losing your fiancé. You're going to have to deal with condemnation and judgment, possibly from your family and the community, for sin that you didn't even commit. And Mary's response says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. This is what Jesus is calling us to pray, and this is the heart that he's asking us to pray with when we pray, your will be done. And it's not only that, but it's, it's not that we don't pray with, with our will. We, that, that we don't come to Jesus and, and pray what we want. Jesus wants to hear what we want. He wants us coming to him. In fact, Jesus did this in the garden when he prayed. He said, Lord, let this, if there's any way that we, we can avoid what I've never experienced before, and that's separation, momentary separation from you, if we can avoid that, if there's any way that this cup could pass, then can you do that? That's what I would desire. And so it's not wrong to pray for our will, to ask God for the things that we desire and long for. But what Jesus ultimately did in the garden, he says, not my will, but your will be done. Because Jesus knew and believed that what God's will was, was best for his life. And going to the cross would be best. When we pray in this way, when we're praying for God's kingdom to come, for him to rule, not only on this earth, but in our lives. And when we're asking for him to come and to do his will in our lives and for us to obey his will, this is what brings glory to God. God is glorified when we pray in that spirit, in that manner, with that kind of heart. Well, there's a fourth attitude that Jesus teaches us to pray with that will glorify our Father and that is to pray with a heart of desperate dependence upon God. To pray with a heart of desperate dependence upon God. And we find this in verse 11 when Jesus teaches us to say, Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. What we're literally praying is for the daily provision of that day. And this made a lot of sense in the past when you were paid a day's wage for a day's worth of food. And many people existed, and still even do to this day in some parts of the world, they exist in that kind of economy. And so people would, would sense their neediness, their desperate need. Jesus is literally saying, pray for the bread that is necessary just for today. Like what John MacArthur says about this, he says, this part of the prayer is in the form of a petition, but it is also an affirmation which is why it is as appropriate for those who are well-fed as for those who have little to eat. Above all, it is an affirmation that every good thing we have comes from the gracious hand of God. And I would submit to you, it is also an affirmation that we are needy people, whether we think so or not. And that's our problem, is that we live in a culture of self-sufficiency. We live in a culture where everything is within reach, where we have an abundance, where we live continuous from day to day with little interruption or deviation. 
We don't realize that at any given moment, we are just a breath away from disaster, from despair, from destruction, and even death. We saw this very vividly in March of this year in Japan when an earthquake erupted that caused a tsunami and eventually even caused a nuclear meltdown. And a whole country, many of whom do not know Christ, who are very self-sufficient, and who were experiencing days like this, normal days, where they knew where their food was coming from, where they knew where their electricity was coming from, where they were safe and secure and in good health, and enjoying the pleasures of life, where they were brought to their knees in, a moment, in just a matter of minutes, not knowing what was going to happen, not knowing where, the, where things were going to come from. And this is where God wants us. When Jesus says, give, pray then, give us this day our daily bread, he's saying, pray in a way where you confess and you continually admit your desperate need and dependence upon God. Pray in that way. Acknowledge that you're needy. If, that if you're needy for the smallest thing, just the, the, the little amount of food necessary to live one more day, if you need that, then you need everything else. But he's saying, but pray, pray it. Say, give us. You see, we can't pray that enough. Our children tire us out when they're like, Dad, can you give me, can you give me, can you give me, can you give me? But our Father in heaven, Jesus is saying, you have a Father who cannot hear that enough. In fact, he's glorified, he's exalted when you come to him, continually saying, Lord, give to me, give to me. I don't have, I need, I'm desperate, I'm, de- I'm, I'm dependent upon you. And we see the heart of our Father in Matthew chapter 7. Verses 7 to 11, where it says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Or if you then, and so he says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more Will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? We have a Father, and Jesus wants us to pray with a heart that realizes and believes that we have a Father who longs to unleash on us, to lavish us, to bless us, to provide for us, to help us, to sustain us. He says, all you need to do is ask. Open your mouth. That's what prayer is coming. Prayer is partly speaking to God, but it is that, that word for prayer that we see in verse 9. It is make request of him. Come to him. Pour out your heart to him. Tell him what you need. All we need to do is ask. And Jesus says, I will do it. I will give that to you. I will give good things to you. James is right when he says, you do not have. Often we don't have something because you don't ask. He says, you haven't asked. Or, James goes on to say in verse 3, you ask but you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. See, the reminder in the prayer and the spirit of the heart that ought to pray, give us this day our daily bread, is a heart that says, Lord, I want, I, I want what you will provide for me so that I can serve you, so that I can live for you, not for myself, not for my own kingdom. It's, it's, it's already the heart that said, I want to live for your kingdom and for your will. And so give me the things I need to do that. But Jesus says, when you come and you ask and you ask for something, he will give it. He will give it. He longs to give. This is the picture of our Father that Jesus wants us to believe in. This is the heart that he wants us to pray with. And for God to give in this way glorifies him. Glorifies him. And so often we just, we just trust in ourselves to provide. Even physically, we, we think by eating the right food or taking the right medication, or just getting the right amount of exercise, we'll be okay. We don't ask as much as we ought to for things 
physically or even relationally. We don't realize that at any moment we're, we're at the brink of destroying relationships around us, both our marriage, our parents, our parenting, our kids' lives, and even those in the church. We don't see our desperate need and how needy we are for God to help us relationally or even spiritually. Sometimes we're just content not to change. We're okay the way we are. We don't see how needy we are, how in need of sanctification and change and patience or whatever else we need. We don't see it and then we don't ask. And so we don't have. Or even vocationally, we think that we just can rely on our mind. God's given us a good mind, so we're smart and we can, we can get by with that. And when things get hard at work, we just need to try harder. And so we don't come to God desperate, dependent, needy. Jesus says, when you pray, when you pray, pray this way. Give us, Lord. Give me everything I need. That is what glorifies God. Well, there's a fifth attitude that Jesus teaches us to pray with that will glorify him, that will honor him and exalt him. And that's to pray with a heart of brokenness and repentance over sin. To pray with a heart of brokenness and repentance over sin. And we find this in verse 12 where he says, And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. See, the one who asks for forgiveness is the one who is repentant. And true repentance involves the heart, the mind, and the will. It involves the heart in that true repentance is broken over sin. It's sorrowful over sin in the heart. It's pain with the fact that we've sinned against God, that we've hurt our Father, that we've brought pain to Him in our actions. And true repentance involves the mind in acknowledging our sin and confessing it to God. And it involves the will in in, in turning from that sin and forsaking it in order to follow after Christ and do what he wants. You see, repentance is a part of becoming a child of God, just as much as faith is. Jesus said in Matthew 3, 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he said in Luke 13, 3, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And so repentance is necessary, but it's necessary not only for conversion. It's necessary, like faith, to be a daily part of our lives. Where daily we're coming to the Lord continually, broken over our sin, confessing and acknowledging it, and crying out for help to turn away from it and forsake it. Now forgiveness here, for those who know Christ, is not forgiveness for salvation. It's, it's forgiveness in order to maintain a relationship. You see, sin is the greatest hindrance to our relationships including our relationship with God. And we know this firsthand. We know this in other relationships. We experience this. I know there's days where Jen and I are getting along. We're relating really well to one another. We've started off with a great morning and we're talking. We're enjoying each other. And then the next minute, we've gotten into an argument and sin is flying all across the room and we sinned against each other. And now our relationship is stifled and stiff. We, we won't even make eye contact. We begin to ignore each other around the house to the point that the kids are like, what are you guys doing And we get to the end of the day and we're lying in bed and we're so far apart, stiff as a board, silent, but wide awake, unable to sleep. And we we experience this with children also. Our children sin against us and they hide from us. They begin to avoid us. They don't make eye contact, even though it's all over their face that they're guilty, that they've done something. You see, sin hinders relationship. And Jesus wants us... To pray, Lord, forgive us out of a heart that says, I don't want my sin to ever come between me and God. I want to continually be relating to my Father. And if I have sin, I want to come and confess that 
and, and believe that he will forgive me. And that's the, that's the sad thing is that often because of our experiences in other earthly relationships, we, we don't confess because we're fearful. We're fearful of what's going to happen. If we've sinned grievously against someone, we're fearful that we're going to be condemned or rejected or forsaken. And often that does happen. But here's the difference. Jesus is saying you have a father who no matter what you've done to him or against him, when you come to him and you're truly repentant and truly broken over this sin, he will forgive you. He will forgive you. We see this so beautifully pictured in 1 John 1, 8 and 9. He says if we say that we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so we're in big trouble if we don't confess and we're not truly repentant. But if we are, if we confess our sins, if we're broken over our sin, we come to God and we, we ask for forgiveness, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have a father who's standing there waiting and saying, come to me, don't let this, this sin come between us. Just come and confess it. I already know what it is. Come and, and ask me for forgiveness. Be broken over it. And I promise I will forgive you. I will wipe you clean and I will bring you back into relationship with me and I will love you and care for you and relate to you. That's what I long to do. David experienced this in Psalm 32, 5. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Here's David celebrating this reality that his father, the God of the universe, has brought him back into a relationship with him and he's forgiven him. And, and, and our father stands ready to do this, even when we've sinned against him in the, the, for, the, for the millionth time in a particular way. But he said, Jesus is teaching us something in addition in this, in this verse. He says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Like what John Stott says about this second clause or second part of the, of the of the verse, he says, this certainly does not mean that our forgiveness of others earns us the right to be forgiven. It is rather that God forgives only the penitent or the repentant, and that one of the chief evidences of true penitence is a forgiving spirit. Once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offenses against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. You see, what Jesus is teaching us here is that true repentance, a truly repentant heart, is the soil from which mercy grows and from which forgiveness blossoms up. And what he's saying is, if you come to me repentant, and I know that you will be repentant if you're, forgive, if you're able to forgive others, then he says, I will forgive you. But if you're not truly repentant, and one of the ways I'll know that is if you are unwilling to forgive others, then I will not forgive you. In fact, after the prayer, he, he, meant, he makes much of this in verse 14 and 15. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. For if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. God is willing to forgive, but only if we are truly broken over our sin. And when we see ourselves as those who have a mountain of debt, and that's the beautiful the Jewish term for sin, debt, this just this mountain of sin and offense against God, if we truly are broken and repentant, we'll see this mountain and we'll see what God has done through His Son, our Father, in, in clearing the way for that and in, in restoring relationship with us. And then we'll look at the small piles that people have against us and we'll be able to brush those off and forgive them 
And I know that's not easy to do, but that is possible to do. And it comes from being broken. So we ought to pray for a heart that is broken over sin and repentant. And we ought to pray primarily for that because we don't want anything to hinder relationship with God. And if there's sin in our lives, we want to get it out of the way so that we can get back with our Father, enjoying Him. This glorifies God. It glorifies Him when we come in that way. It glorifies Him that He's able, He's so able to easily forgive. It's not hard for Him. He says, I will forgive. It costs me everything, but I will do it. I I love to do it. I long to do it. Come to me and, and, and try me. I will forgive you. Well, there's a last and final attitude that Jesus teaches us to pray with. And that is to pray with a heart of purity that longs for holiness. To pray with a heart of purity that longs for holiness. We find that in verse 13 where Jesus teaches us to pray. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We want to be clear about what we're not praying here so that we can understand what we are praying, with what kind of heart we ought to pray. Jesus is saying, he's not saying pray, uh, Lord God, don't tempt me directly. Uh, James 1, 13 and 14 tell us that it says, let no one when he's being tempted say, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself tempts no one. So God is not the one who entices, ever entices any of his children to sin. That would be like me trying to entice one of my children to sin. God does not do that as our father. So that's not what we're asking for. Neither are we asking, Lord, don't, don't uh, allow me to experience trials. It's interesting, the, the word for temptation, perasmos, can mean either temptation or trial. So we're not saying, Lord, uh, do not lead me into any kind of trials or difficult circumstances, because we also acknowledge in James, earlier in, the, in that, that book, he says, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. So what are we praying for here? I believe what we're praying for is we're saying, Lord, don't allow me to enter into any circumstance that would lead me, because of my own weakness, because of my own sin, to fail and to sin against you. You see, we're, we're, we're praying that, this prayer with a heart that realizes that we are the biggest problem, that we are weak. In James, he goes on to say, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own desire or by his own lust. And so it's, it's praying with a heart of humility that says, Lord, deliver me from myself. Help me to not fall into temptation because my flesh is weak. Jesus prayed, or he called us to pray this very same kind of prayer in the garden. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so we, we approach God with this heart of, of, of desperation, neediness, and say, Lord, please don't let me be in any circumstance that would cause me to sin. I'm not against difficult circumstances, but don't let me be overcome by sin because of my own weaknesses. And there's a second part to what we ought to pray, and that's we ought to pray, deliver us from evil. Literally, it is a better rendering to say, deliver us from the evil one. I really believe that Satan is in view here. In John 17:15, Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. He's praying to his father on our behalf and he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. You see, Jesus doesn't promise us shelter from evil, from wickedness, 
from the dangers and the darkness of this world. But what he does promise is deliverance from Satan. And when we pray this prayer, that's what we're praying for. And we're recognizing that it is only in God's power, only in his strength, in our Father's power, that we can avoid the evil one. You see, not only does true brokenness or repentance lead to mercy and forgiveness, like we saw in the previous attitude of the heart, but it leads ultimately, motivated by the glory of God, it leads ultimately to holiness and change. You see, what we're praying in this prayer is not only we're praying what we, what we just prayed before, Lord, forgive me for the sins that I've committed in the past because I don't want them to hinder our relationship. But also, Lord, don't let me even sin in the future. Don't let me do anything that would, that would cause me to dishonor you or to, to, that would threaten our relationship and hinder our fellowship. Lord, keep me from these things. And this is praying from a heart that longs to no longer sin anymore, that longs to be holy, that's tired of sin, that acknowledges its own weakness in the flesh and the power of the evil one and says, Lord, deliver me from these things. Deliver me from myself and deliver me from the evil one. And Lord, help me never to sin against you again. I long to be holy. I long to be changed and transformed and to be pure and to live in a relationship with you. That's the heart of verse 13 when we pray that way. And that's what Jesus is glorified in when we, when we pray and we call out to him, not just for what we need daily, but even this kind of deliverance. Jesus is all in the business of saving and even saving us from ourselves and from Satan. The other beautiful thing about this, this verse is that it gives us hope. There's so many of us as believers who are despairing. We, we've, we've dealt with besetting sin or a certain type of sin. Uh, and, and either we've dealt with it in, in, in such a concentrated form or for such a long time because maybe we were exposed to it at an early age and we began to sin in that way from from childhood, and we, we say, Lord, there's no hope for me. I can't get rid of this. But when, when, when Jesus is instructing us to pray in this way, he's, he's giving us hope. He's saying, come to your Father and pray this way. Pray with this kind of heart that says, Lord, I need you. I am weak, and I'm the reason I, that, I, that I fall into temptation, that I sin. Lord, deliver me from myself. Help me. And, Je- and Jesus is saying, just pray that. Pray to me, come to me as your father and say, lead me not into these kinds of situations. Keep me from this. Deliver me, rescue me from the evil one. And God says, when you pray that, I'm glorified, I'm honored, and I will answer that kind of prayer. In fact, this is the heart of God. We see it in 1 Thessalonians 4.3. It says, for this is the will of God. This is what God wants for you. This is what God longs for you. This is what God sent his son to die on the cross for you. That your sanctification, that you would be changed, that you would be transformed, that you would be delivered from yourself. And Jesus says, pray with this kind of heart that longs to be holy, that longs for change, that longs to be transformed, that longs to leave sin behind and be freed from it. And then trust, trust that your father longs to do this, that he is the one who is able. Like Jude 24 says, we need to remember that it is God who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. This is how God gets glory. So we pray this with a heart that longs for holiness, longs for purity, and then invites him in to make that difference, to bring about that transformation. Well, as we close, be encouraged with, with what Jesus is teaching us here. There, there is encouragement here. When we look at this prayer, number one, we do realize that that the Lord is teaching us we don't know how to pray as we should. 
When I look at, at, at this Lord's Prayer, at the, at the disciples' prayer, the, the initial thought can be, I can't do this. And that's a good thought. We ought to realize we, we don't pray as we should. This is how we ought to pray, and we don't pray this way often. But there's hope because Jesus is teaching us how to pray, and he's the one who will answer our prayers, not only when we pray in the Spirit, but when we pray for this kind of heart. That's what he wants us coming. He wants us saying, Lord, help me to pray where, where I'm trusting you as my Father and relating to you as a child. Help me to pray in a way that I'm all about your name and I'm putting to death my own glory. Help me to pray, Lord, because I don't do it all the time for your kingdom to come. Help me to put my kingdom to death and, and submit myself willingly in, in, in full trust that your plan is the best for my life. Lord, help me to pray in total dependence upon you, that you would give me everything that I need. Help me, help me to pray in a way that I would be broken over my sin, always asking you for forgiveness, always wanting to relate to you continually. And Lord, help me to pray in a way where I would ask you to deliver me from myself and from the evil one and where I would long for holiness and long to glorify you. Jesus says, when you pray that, when you pray not only with this kind of heart, but for this kind of heart, I will answer that prayer. I will answer that prayer. And that's the hope that we have as Jesus teaches us how to pray. Yes, we fail, but Jesus is there to continue to teach us as he taught his disciples and to continue to help us to pray this way and to teach us how to do this. Well, let's ask him to do that even now as we pray. Father, I just come before you and I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did teach us to pray. You have not left us blind or without direction, Lord. You have revealed your heart and the heart that you long for in us when we come and pray, Lord. We are not to be like the hypocrites, coming in our own glory and for our own glory. Lord, forgive us when our public prayer life is getting attention and we have no private prayer life. Lord, forgive us when we're coming to you as the Gentiles, thinking that you're hearing us for our amazing prayers, our long words, whatever else, and we're coming to you with that kind of self-righteousness, thinking that that's going to find favor in your eyes. Lord, forgive us for that. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we do not pray with these kinds of heart attitudes. But thank you, Lord. Thank you that Jesus not only taught us, but he is our Savior. He is the one who can deliver us. He's the one who can enable us. He's the one who can help us to pray in this way. He is the one who will ultimately teach us to pray this way. And Lord, we pray that you would do that work in us through the rest of this seminar and into this new year, that we would grow in our ability to pray in a way that glorifies you, that longs to see you lifted up. Lord, you are awesome. And we want to pray in a way that brings you the glory that is due your name, where we acknowledge your glory, we value it, and we make it known to others. Lord, we pray as we give to you now that we would also give to you with that kind of heart, with a, with a heart that longs to see you glorified, longs to see your kingdom advanced and see you get the glory that you deserve, Lord. You even taught about that before this. You taught how to give. Help us, whatever we do, whether we eat or drink or give or pray, help us to pray and to live in a way that glorifies you. This is our prayer, Lord. We pray it all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.